Anyone watch the, the debate last night? I hear there was a Republican debate, and um, it's nice to see them all getting along. Nobody had any issues with anyone else, and man, it got a little contentious at times. Some of the things that were flying around, and, and the accusations, and the back and forth, and you sort of expect that in politics, right? Not that we like it, but you sort of expect it. But it's harder to take those kinds of criticisms when it's from someone you love, right? When it's from someone close to you. And, and this morning we, we come to the, the text and we're right at the beginning of Second Corinthians, but Paul is just going to dive right in to the elephant in the room. You know how sometimes you know there's an issue between you and someone else and it's like, okay, we got to talk about this. It's the elephant in the room. Paul and the church at Corinth have had a really difficult relationship up to this point. And, and we, we outlined that a few weeks ago. There was an opening letter where some, some um, chastisement, some discipline was given that wasn't received well. First Corinthians was written. And then there was a, a visit and Timothy visited. And the reports are it's getting worse and worse. They didn't respond to First Corinthians well. And we're going to du- jump in this morning and find out there's been another visit and another severe letter. And the relationship is struggling. And there's criticism of Paul. There's challenges to Paul. And and for you and I, as we come to this, we we get criticized, right? We have to deal with criticism all the time. Sometimes, quite frankly, deserved because we're fallen creatures. Sometimes undeserved. So how do we handle that? It's interesting that we, we come to this as we're in a year where we're talking about loving God and loving others. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving our neighbor, loving others as ourselves. And that is so, so important to sort of flesh out in community because it is hard sometimes to love others. We rub each other the wrong way sometimes. Sometimes my family rubs me the wrong way. They're out of the room, right? <laughs> and usually, quite frankly, it's not their fault. <laughs> it's, it's me just, you know, sometimes you're just... Ugh! Sometimes we come and in a... Bo- <laughs> good job, good job. Sometimes in a body of 200 people, we'll come and we rub each other the wrong way and we say things that are hurtful and we have issues we have to deal with. And I appreciate that Paul just jumps in and says, let's start dealing with it. He's going to deal with it several times throughout 2 Corinthians. But we we come to his first time and and he begins to deal with, with conflict in the situation. He doesn't deal with it all in this text, but he's setting the groundwork and he begins to address it and explain himself. See, conflict, if left unchecked, tends to explode, doesn't it? Just grows and grows and grows. A few years back, I was reading a journal called Nine Marks Journal, and it, it, it outlined the anatomy of conflict. I thought, oh, that's really helpful, especially for when we study Second um, Corinthians. And I just want to run through this, because it'll help us understand where the church was at. It also understand, helps us understand where we're at. I know the print's a little small, so we will um, get through. I'll read through them. Conflict starts, number one, an offense occurs. Legitimate offense often occurs. Number two, a biased view of the offense is shared with friends. There's a lot of truth in this, isn't there? Three, friends take up the offense. We will defend you. Let's go get the evil person. Four, sides begin to form. Five, suspicion on both sides develops. Six, each side looks for evidence to confirm their suspicion. 
and you can be sure they will find it. Seven, exaggerated statements are made. Eight, in the heat of conflict, those involved hear things that were never said and say things they wish they had never said. Nine, third parties, no matter how well-intentioned, can never accurately transfer information from one offended party to the other. Ten, past offenses unrelated to the original offense surface. Eleven, integrity is challenged. Twelve, people call each other liars. Thirteen, those who try to solve the problem are blamed for not following the proper procedure and become the new focus. Oh, joy. Fourteen, many are hurt. And we see how a single offense can blossom into a major conflict. Sort of to give us an idea of where Paul and Corinth are, I would say they're around 13 or 14 in the list at this point. Earlier with 1 Corinthians, probably more like 5 or 6. But they're down to 13 and 14. And we're going to see that by some of the accusations that Paul is responding to, some of the things that are happening. And so this is a bad situation. In that article it said, if you get to 13 or 14, you're probably not going to recover. Well, Paul, through the grace of Christ, deals with it in a way that they actually recover. We know that because their relationship is restored. Because through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, any relationship can be restored. And so we we come to this text and, and we're getting a window into the conflict between Paul and Corinth. And it, it, this, this is one of those texts that doesn't explicitly say you should do this or you should do this, but we know that all Scripture is given for our instruction, right? And so we come to a text like this and say, what, what can we glean from the example of Paul? Because he was in a desperately difficult situation. And he had been wrongly accused of so many things. And right from the start, Just the fact that Paul deals with it is significant. Sometimes we shouldn't deal with an offense. We have a proverb that says it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. And some things we overlook and we move on from. And and, and we know that if we become defensive about things, oftentimes that just adds gasoline to the fire, right? And we look defensive and we look guilty then. and, And so when do you address something and when don't you? For Paul, this was important to address because of the nature of the accusations. Because the accusations were stopping the work of God. This wasn't Paul defending his ego. As quite frankly, when I'm defending myself, it's usually about my ego. I, I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be thought of that way. You are wrong. I am right. Let's talk about it civilly. <laughs> but Paul here has a whole different purpose in mind. Because he is dealing with a situation where now the gospel is being questioned. See, now they're questioning, and we'll see, they're questioning Paul's integrity, and they jump to, if Paul isn't honest, then maybe the gospel isn't true. That's worth defending. They are questioning Paul's associates and the work that they're doing, and so Paul is defending them. They're denying Paul's message. They're denying his authority to call them on their sin. They're denying his love for them. And so Paul says, I have to deal with that. That's not about me. That's about God and what he's doing in his church. And so Paul jumps right in. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I'm still working on saying 2 Corinthians instead of 1 Corinthians. Just bear with me. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to dive right in. Right after his introduction, this is the first topic he talks about. Why not? They're all thinking about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one right under one of the seats around you. Um, grab that, open it up to 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, second half of, of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that home. That's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. It's that important. And so please take that and read it and enjoy it. Second Corinthians chapter 1. And we want to start at verse 12. And we're going to take it paragraph by paragraph. And we'll start with verses 12 through 14. And the, the point, my point there for 12 through 14 is a word conscience. Paul is dealing with his conscience. Paul starts by evaluating his own integrity and motives in light of God's grace. Paul starts by evaluating his own integrity and motives in light of God's grace. Let's read these verses together. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, I I don't know if you're like me. I I read a lot of this section the first time, and I'm like, hmm, I think I need to reread that. I'm not quite sure what he's saying. Because he's dealing with a situation we don't know about. And, And this is something sometimes as we study God's Word, we have to infer certain facts that we don't know. And and we just have to be honest that we're inferring them. In this case, we don't have a record of the accusation, the church accusations the church at Corinth were making against Paul. But we can tell by what he responds to point by point what their accusations probably were. We're inferring the accusations. And so in your notes, I have a a line for accusation and probably what Paul is referring to, and we compare other scriptures to. In this first section, he's, he's addressing the accusation that he's acted shamefully and insincerely toward them. He's acted shamefully and insincerely toward him both in his motives and even in what he says. And, and, and let's unpack this. And this morning we're going to go verse by verse and unpack what it says. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity. Some of your translation says, says holiness there. Um, and there's some textual reasons for that. But the ESV uses simplicity and godly sincerity. And he starts with that word boast. And, and we look at that and we're like, wait a minute. We're not supposed to boast. My mom said, this is bad. Well, Paul uses boasting as more the idea of confidence. I am confident of this. My confidence is in this. And Paul sometimes uses boasting in a negative way. My confidence is in myself, how great I am. And he sometimes, and, and not about himself, but he addresses that. And sometimes he uses it as a positive thing when he says, I boast in the Lord. I boast that his grace and his power bring me through. And in this case, we're going to see he's boasting in the grace of God. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. And again, we have to understand that word conscience there. For us, it's, it's you know, Tinkerbell or whatever in the back that prods us whenever we do something wrong, right? It's sort of this light thing. To understand how Paul uses conscience is, I have thought through this intensely 
and evaluated whether this is right or wrong. And so it's a, it's a process of self-evaluation, of honest, genuine evaluation. Am I in the right here? Are my motives right or wrong? And that's the important place to start, right? When we're in conflict with someone else, it is so easy to say, they are evil, they hurt me. And our first step should be, what's my part in this? Where's my heart? Am I above reproach? As I do premarital counseling and we go through conflict resolution, one of the things we always say is you've got to own your part. You, you've, got to, you've got to realize there is no conflict, that almost no conflict that is completely one-sided. And until we're owning our part, this isn't going to be resolved. And Paul here starts by saying, I'm evaluating my conscience. And, and we're getting the results of that. My boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. I've evaluated. I've prayed about this. I've thought about it. And we are above reproach. We have come to you sincerely because we love you. Paul's telling this church, I haven't been trying to hurt you. I haven't been trying to manipulate you. And remember the itinerant preachers, the traveling preachers, they would come into town preach, get paid to preach, and then when the money dried up, they'd go to the next town. So that's the culture, and that's what Paul's being accused of. You really don't care about us. You really don't believe the message you're saying. You're just in this for the money. And Paul's saying it is with sincerity. Simplicity, meaning I'm not trying to be complex and trick you with my words. I'm not trying to say things I don't mean. I'm out there. I'm genuine. This is me. I've opened my heart to you. And he's not saying this maliciously, but he's explaining his heart. He's sharing his heart. One other word about conscience is as we, it, it is so easy for us to get into the trap of, well, I've thought through this and I'm right and you're wrong. Keep in mind conscience, our consciences are fallible. We have an amazing ability as human beings to justify our own actions. We're really good at it. I've come up with some really creative things in my lifetime for why I'm right. And so we have to be careful to get input, to to compare that with Scripture, to allow the Holy Spirit to work, to allow people that know us to say, no, no, you're wrong in this one. Because we need to test our conscience. Was this really right or wrong? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's not just what I think of myself. It is the Lord who judges me. And so Paul, by bringing this up, this isn't his only point. He's not just going to say, I'm okay because I think I'm okay. But he has had other people uh, and, and his co-workers um, talk about this with him. He has gone to God in prayer. And so he's just putting it out there. I've evaluated myself. With simplicity, godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom. You can cross out or don't cross out earthly wisdom. You can put in the margins pride, arrogance. I haven't come to you on my own wisdom, on my own pride, thinking I'm all that, but by the grace of God. And that's the key of that verse. That's the central point. It's, the, it's sort of the purpose clause. I've been able to come to you because of the grace of God. You'll find almost every time Paul brings up conflict, he goes back to the grace of God or the gospel. 
We sang about that this morning because the foundation is God has reconciled us to himself and so we can reconcile to each other. Like we talked about with love God, love others. We love God. He loves us first. We love him back. And because of that, then we can love other people. It's the same thing. And so he says, not with earthly wisdom, pride, or arrogance. I haven't been being clever to try to manipulate you. But by the grace of God. And supremely so toward you. I love that phrase. Supremely so toward you. I have done everything I can to work on your behalf. To not be accused of taking money or power. In fact, we know from 1 Corinthians he didn't even take money from them. Because he was afraid of being accused of just being in it for the money. And so Paul here is addressing them in love, being falsely accused. His character has been attacked. And he says, by the grace of God, I've acted well towards you. We're going to find out as we go on. He says, I I care about you. I love you. And that's why I do what I do. Verse 13. He addresses another part of this complaint. Again, the accusation, you've acted shamefully and insincerely against us. 13. For we were not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand. And and understand, uh, again, we don't talk like this, right? I, I, I don't go to happy and say, you know, I, I think you're writing to me something other than I'm going to understand. You'd be like, did you not sleep last night? No, what he's meaning here is, I, I'm, don't try to read between the lines. What I write is what I mean. The accusation is, yeah, you're writing that, but that's not really what you mean. There, there's something behind this. There, there's more to this. And in fact, later the accusation is going to come is, you don't always even act the same way when you're here because you're almost too loving and sometimes you write some pretty mean things. And, and, and so he's being accused that in his writing he's manipulative and not sincere. That he doesn't mean what he said. And so the, the church at Corinth, like if you think of the anatomy of the conflict, they were probably looking for things in his writing to attack him on. Reading between the lines. When we start to assume motives, oh, that's dangerous in conflict. And they're assuming that Paul is insincere, that he doesn't really believe what he's saying, and that just taints their whole view of Paul. And and Paul's saying, there's no hidden agenda here. I've been really plain. In fact, one of the complaints to him when he's there is he's too plain. he's, He's not a very good orator. He doesn't have all the sophisticated words. So there's... can't even get their accusation right. But Paul says, for we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. It's it's right there. I hope you'll fully understand it. Just as you did partially understand us. And and he's actually complimenting them, saying, you you have been tracking with us. You've partially understood that. And that could mean part of the church has or that they've partially understood. And a lot of the commentators feel like it's probably part of the church has has really been tracking with them. Because at this point in 2 Corinthians, there's been reconciliation with a good portion of of the church. But there's still a faction that is spreading these lies about him. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And he comes back to hope. When we're in heaven, we're going to know the motives. It's going to all be clear. You're going to know that I love you. You're going to know that I'm genuine. And we're going to be, have confidence in each other. We're going to be able to boast in each other. 
One other thing on, on verse 13. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you'll fully understand. A sub-point, the Bible's understandable. God's Word is readable and understandable. Paul here is defending God's Word. He's defending First and Second Corinthians. And he's saying this is understandable. And so that's why we encourage you to do your rooted readings and to be in God's Word. You don't have to have me to understand God's Word. In fact, it is really awesome and much better when you don't need me to understand God's Word. Because we as a body should be digging in and seeing it as understandable and growing and understanding it. So don't neglect God's Word. Appreciated your point this morning, Jim, on that, of appreciating God's Word and, and, and holding firm to, God, to the Bible. So the first paragraph, Paul is appealing to his conscience. He starts by evaluating his own integrity and motives in light of God's grace doesn't shy away from the conversation, but he starts with, I'm checking myself out. Next paragraph, 15 to 22, and there's a lot in this one. The word I put there was clarify, because to me, it looks like Paul is clarifying both facts and purposes. And in conflict resolution, doesn't, doesn't there have to be some clarification? There has to be some conversation. And so Paul here is clarifying God is faithful and his plans might change ours. The accusation, and, and, and that may not, we'll dig into that. The accusation is Paul is a double-minded man. It's a charge of fickleness. You can't be trusted because you don't do what you say. Have you ever been accused of that? No, don't raise your hands. <laughs> we, we all have been accused of that. We've all done that sometimes. Things come up. We can't do, we can't do what we say. You know, I might say that I'm going to go visit Margie's house today for the Super Bowl. Wait, 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 wait. Last time we were on opposite teams. We'll talk. I might say I'm going to visit Margie's house for the Super Bowl, and then what if one of my kids gets sick and I don't show up? She could call me up and say, you're a liar. You said you'd come. Now, is she right? Well, I did say I would come and I didn't go, but there were reasons for that, right? And, and so Paul here is appealing to some big, larger purposes. They're accusing him of, of being fickle in his plans to visit them. And then probably saying his, his mess, and not all of them, but the, the guys attacking Paul are probably saying, see, his message of the gospel isn't even right then. If he can't even do what he says, you're going to trust him with something as important as the gospel? Wow. That's why Paul had to respond. So let's dive into this, starting at verse 15. Because I was sure of this, his confidence that in the end they'll know, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Okay, did you catch all that? probably hard for us because we're familiar more with Anaheim Garden Grove and, and not so much Macedonia. But, but here's what Paul is saying. And there's a couple things to, to help us understand this. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 15, and if we can put that map up, we'll have some fun, fun with Ron with maps today. Um, if we look at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Why, why was Paul sharing that? 
I want to be with you. I love you, right? I'm looking forward to being with you. So his first plan, plan A, and remember, he is over, there we go. He is over here at Ephesus, and this is Corinth. And so you have water in between, and this up here is Macedonia. And he's, he's making a, a tour of the churches, making a collection to take back to Jerusalem. And his first plan is, I'm going to go up through Macedonia, either by ship or by land and then across, visit these churches. On my way down, I'm going to come and spend some time in Corinth, and then I'm going to go back down to Jerusalem. Good plan, right? For whatever reason, that plan changed. And so in the text that we have in 2 Corinthians, Paul shares the new plan. And, and he'll, he'll say why it changed, but it, it changed because of their relationship, and Paul wanted to do what was best for that relationship. And his new plan is, I'm going to leave Ephesus, and this is what's on this diagram. I'm going to come to you first so we can spend some time together. Then I'm going to go up through Macedonia. Then I'm going to come back down and visit you again. And then I'm going to go on my way. Okay, so at that point, and some think, well, they were upset about that change of plans. I don't think they were upset about that because they get them twice now instead of one. And he says in there, so that it'll be a double blessing, a second experience of grace. And this probably is because there was tension there. And Paul wants to come to them and make sure it's right, deal with it, get it done so he can go on with ministry and then come back. But he's changed his mind again. And this is where the charge of fickleness comes in. As we're going to see in the the third paragraph, he came over here when he got a report that things were really bad in Corinth. And he made a painful visit, he calls it. And that could have been painful for a variety of reasons, probably because of the accusations and the, the factions against him. And they sort of ran him out of town. And so he came over to check on them, to try to fix things, And instead of going up to Macedonia, he came back to Ephesus. And at that point, he writes what he calls a painful letter dealing with the sin in the church. Because he's got to get this right. He's got to make this relationship right. And probably in that letter, we don't have that letter either, but probably in that letter or through the messenger that took the letter, he said, you know what? I don't know when I'm going to be back now. That's probably what they were upset with. They were... So the charges came. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't even know if he's going to be back. And so Paul's dealing with that here. I wanted to visit you, verse 16, on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating? And here's where we understand the charge in verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh? Or or you could read that self-centeredly just because I wanted to. Did I make my plans because of what I wanted? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. The NIV adds in the same breath. And do do you see what he's saying? The, the, The charge is you say one thing and do another. And he actually brings up some words of Jesus where, where Jesus says, let, let what you say simply be yes and no in Matthew chapter 5. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so Paul brings this up. And he says, I, I haven't just been willy-nilly changing my mind. It hasn't been because I don't feel like visiting you. And he's going to get into why. But in verse 18, and he invokes a, a, an oath here, and he'll, he'll do that twice in this, in this passage. He said, as surely as God is faithful. 
If God is faithful, we have meant what we said. We intended to follow through with this. Our yes has been yes. Our no has been no. And that idea of saying we haven't said yes and no, it's being double double speak, saying two different things at the same time, depending on what people wanted to hear. But the church at Corinth was struggling with this. Now, I, I look at this and I'm like, are you serious? This is their issue? That he had to change his plans? Especially back there with ships and storms and everything. You change plans all the time. But they were looking for things. The relationship was already suffering and so they were looking for ways to attack his character. We have to understand not to put it all in the church at Corinth. This was their culture. One of the statements in in Stoicism, one of the prevailing thoughts of the time and in Corinth, it considered decisiveness a defining virtue of a wise man. And and we, we read in some of their literature, nor do the Stoics assume that a man with good sense changes his mind. For changing one's mind belongs to false assent on the grounds of erring through haste. Nor does he change his mind in any way, nor alter his opinion, nor is he confused. For all these things are marks of those who waver in their beliefs, which is alien to the person with good sense. So the church at Corinth is buying into the culture of the day and using it against Paul. So Paul asked these questions. Do you really think I'm self-centered in my plans? Do you really think I haven't evaluated what God would have me do? And the answer is no. As God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And now he goes to God's faithfulness and he goes to the gospel. And I love how he interjects it. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, Sylvanius being um, Silas, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. And now what he's doing is he's defending his purposes. He, he starts by defending some of the facts and clarifying some of the facts, but now he's clarifying the purposes about the gospel. We are preaching the gospel, and he's also defending the message a bit. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen, or it is true, to God for his glory. And I I struggled with this. I'm like, why does Paul go here? How does this have to do with with his argument and clarifying things? And and some of the authors were just really helpful in that. But it's the idea that it's an argument from the big to the lesser or or the greater to the lesser. And the argument is, I, if I've been faithful to proclaim the faithfulness of God, if I've been faithful to proclaim the gospel, if I'm following God with my whole heart and he is faithful, don't you think he can handle my travel plans? And so that, and, and that's what Paul's doing here is he's, he's going back to the bigger purpose of I'm here to serve God. I'm here for the gospel. God directs me. It's his plans. I've given my life for this. And he said that last week. I've given my life for this. And sometimes God changes my plans. God is sovereign. And and he gives a great testimony of the gospel that Jesus has fulfilled all of the prophecies. He has fulfilled all things. And this is all for God's glory. In 21 and 22, he, he continues this theme. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And that word for established was a legal term, a technical term for the seller's guarantee of the validity of a purchase. 
So it would be like a certificate of authenticity when you buy some memorabilia. And, and so Paul is saying, God is the one that is certifying that we are genuine to you because of the message of the gospel. Don't question the gospel because you know it's true. You know our heart is genuine for you. And so he says God is establishing that. Then he goes on and says, and he has anointed us in Christ and has anointed us. And that, that the idea of anointing, if we remember throughout various passages we've studied, is the idea of anointing someone for a task. It's commissioning us. And Paul's going back to purpose here. God vouches for us. He's anointed us to the task of sharing the gospel. That is our primary purpose. Not whether we come to you before Macedonia or after. And then finally in 22, and who has also put his seal on us. A seal would leave an imprint. You, uh, you would put your ring or a stone into some wax and it would seal a document. No one could open it. No one could tamper with it. This is a, one of the great verses we have for the assurance of salvation. God has put a seal on us. No one can tamper with our salvation. He's given us his spirits in our heart as a guarantee. And so Paul comes back to, man, we're doing God's work. God is vouching for us. This is our purpose. It should also be yours. And so we come back to the grace of God and the cross. It's why Paul does what he does. And it's what Paul appeals to here. And the question we have out of this, this point and this clarification is, are we doing all for his glory? Are we doing everything for the right purposes? If we're in conflict and we clarify our purposes, could we come back to saying it's all about the work of God? Or are our purposes different? Can we come back to saying we're all sealed with the Holy Spirit? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of Paul's appeal here. And then finally in the last paragraph we get to really the the crux of it all. He brings it all together starting at verse 23 going through verse 4 of chapter 2. And Paul's going to come back to care or love. But care had a C and all. Both of the others were C's. <laughs> care, be lovingly sensitive to what will truly be steps toward restoration. Be lovingly sensitive to what will truly be steps towards restoration. I had a, a sub point, but it didn't start with a C. Wisely choose to pursue the things that will restore a relationship rather than make it worse. See, part of the accusations against Paul also was, you don't really love us. You don't really love them. You're just using them for your self-centered purposes. And so Paul comes back and addresses that. Now, Paul, as as an apostle, could have said, you guys are in sin. You guys need to clean up your act. And he did that with some of the sin issues. But when when he's coming to a relationship issue, it's interesting. He takes a different tact here. And we have to have the wisdom to know when to step back and when to engage. Starting in verse 23, but I call God to witness against me. This is stronger oath oath language, by the way. He's basically subpoenaing God to the court of of his, his trial. I would love to see a judge sometime get the list of witnesses and someone put down God. Would that be great for a lawyer to put down? That's, that's what Paul is referring here. He's saying, I call on God to witness against me. 
Literally, if I'm lying, God should kill me. This is strong language. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. It was about you and your growth. It was about my care for you. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. And so Paul, in dealing with conflict, comes back to his heart for them. Comes back to his care for them. And he starts by calling God as witness to assure that he's been sincere in his reasons for not coming. He says, I refrain from coming to you in verse 23 of Corinth um, to spare you, probably to spare you further discipline, harshness. And and Paul here, this is Paul stepping back a little bit and and saying, I've got to let you deal with what we've already been through. I've got to give you room to grow, room to process. One author, Richard Pratt, said, teaching and rebuke have to be timely as well as true. I can't can't word that better. I'm just going to quote it. Teaching and rebuke have to be timely as well as true. Something that Pastor Leroy used to tell me, our prior pastor here, same thing, but in in more of a, a proverb, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I don't know if you remember him saying that. I've always remembered that. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. This is what Paul's doing. He's stepping back and saying, you're not ready to hear more from a visit. I'm going I'm to take some time, write to you some difficult things. I'm going to keep dealing with it. Then I'm going to give some time for you to process that. Then I'm going to come back. See, he didn't need to rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. He was sensitive to when it would be received, to how it would be received. He chose not to overwhelm them. Now, this is hard. This is hard when we have so many things we want to say. You know, I, I am in a new phase of fathering as one of my kids is in sports. And I'm the dad sitting in the stands. Susie's smiling because she's like, shh, shh, when we're sitting in the stands, not right now. <laughs> because I just want to tell him what to do. I'm like, Mark, go do this. Mark, go do this. And after the game Friday, uh, Susie and I are talking. I'm like, man, I have like 10 things that I want to tell him to work on. What happens if I go to my son and share 10 things that he needs to work on out of that game? Because he actually did really well. I crush him. I destroy any chance of him learning anything. And so Susie and I talked, and we picked one thing. One thing. And actually, I haven't even talked to him about it yet. So don't tell him. <laughs> because the timing isn't right. And I'm waiting to, to the next time before. We're going to work on one thing. He's young. He's growing. He doesn't need to worry about 10 things. I've talked with some of you as parents, and as as you're parenting your children, you have so many things you want them to mature in. Take things one at a time. Pick one thing, focus on it, train and develop. That's what Paul's doing here. He's stepping back, saying, I didn't come again 
Because I wanted to spare you. I'd have to address so many things in person and it would be rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. And 24 gives us the attitude, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. And notice two words there, over and with. And throughout Paul's writing, throughout the the, um, epistles, you're going to see him be very intentional about that language. In 1 Peter 5, talking to elders about how to lead, he says that we don't lord it over people. Over, not good. With is good. And, and, and it, it, it's an attitude of whether I feel superior or not, or whether I'm with you in this or not. And he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. And he's affirming the purpose. He's affirming care here, for you stand firm in your faith. I'm amazed because even when accused, even when they are attacking him, Paul still has a servant's heart. I don't know if I could do this. I'd be angry. And he still says, I'm working with you for your joy. I would have been a little better if he said, for your rebuke or for your discipline or punishment. But he says, for your joy, because that's his heart, a heart of care. He's not a dictator. And we need to be careful of the attitude we approach people in. In everyday life, in conflict, we're in this together. We don't want to come in saying, well, I'm going to inform them of what they should do and what they've done. We want to watch words. We need to learn from Paul. He goes on in verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Wouldn't be right. Wouldn't help. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I pained? Basically saying, when I get together, I want to enjoy my time with you. You're helping me on my journey. We're partnering the gospel. If every time I come, it's conflict, there's no, no doing God's work together. There's no joy in that. So I'm going to deal with it a different way. We're going to get past this. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. And he's reaffirming, we will have relationship. They hadn't followed through yet with some of the rebuking that needed to happen, with some of the disciplining that needed to happen when Paul made this change of plans. Now we'll find out next week they did. And Pastor Andrew is going to share with us a little bit of how, how this is resolving. But Paul had confidence that they would. Verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. And Paul here chooses, like we talked about last week, to open up and to still be vulnerable and to still let them see his heart even when they had already stomped on it. And he says, It was hard to write that letter. It was hard to write it. I cried over it. I, there was anguish over it. And he goes on, not to cause you pain because he wanted to speak truth. He wants to resolve it, but he wants to let them know that it's out of love and abundant love that he has for them. I don't think I understood that fully until I had kids. 
My dad used to tell me when he'd, he'd discipline me, the once or twice that I was bad, um, <laughs> he'd be about to spank me, and he'd say, son, this is harder for me than for you. This hurts me more than you. I can remember thinking, yeah, right. Do you have any idea how this hurts? Sometimes in my flesh, I'd like, let's change places and see how much, no. Um, And now I've said the same thing to my kids. Because it's anguish that I discipline. It's out of anguish and love. I don't want to hurt them. And if that's the only reason I'm disciplining, then I need to wait. But I want to love them and see them grow. And through this, we see Paul's affection for the church coming out. He steps back, doesn't visit to chastise them, even though that would have been the the temptation. Writes what needs to be written and steps back, lets God work, and reaffirms his love and care. Wow, that's powerful. Question I have at the bottom of your notes there is, can I step back? and not have my needs be met to help another grow? Can I step back and live with hurt to help another person grow? Paul deals with the elephant in the room. He's going to keep dealing with it. This is by no means everything. But he deals with it by starting with his own conscience, saying, what is my part in this? Making sure he's right with God. Then he clarifies. He speaks truth. He clarifies what actually happened, why it happened, but he brings them back to it's about the gospel. It's about the work of God. It's about his grace. But then, man, he he does a fantastic job of saying, I love you. I love you. I want this resolved. It's painful, but we're going to deal with this. Paul did a great job of that throughout his writing. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12, He's describing to the church at Thessalonica his philosophy of ministry. And he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And he goes on to talk about ministering like a father with his children. Exhorting, that means speaking truth sometimes. Well, all the time, but speaking truth in difficult situations. Encouraging them, charging them to walk in a manner worthy of God, but all out of love. Lord, as I I prayed with the elders this morning, my passion for village is that we love you above all else. And that overflows in loving each other. And I pray that anyone that walks through those doors can walk out saying, man, that's a church that loves God and boy, do they love each other. Let nothing stand in the way of your message. Lord, we are so grateful and dependent on you for your work on the cross. There is nothing I could have done to reconcile myself with you. And so you took it on yourself and you did it all. Lord, I don't know what all goes on once we leave the doors. But I pray you'd help us to be a body that deals with things, loves each other, and is so committed to your work that we will see people saved and come to you.
see people discipled for you. Lord God, we offer our sacrifice this morning of worship and praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.